The History Show with Kieran Doyle on West Cork FM. Welcome listeners to Season 3 of The History Show. This week on The History Show, we deal with an issue that at one time was bigger and greater than anything political. Land. Michael O'Mahony, as part of the Clonakilty Dukas Lecture Series, gave a tour de force lecture before Christmas on one of the biggest land disputes in Clonakilty, the story of William Bence Jones of Lizalan and his battle with the Landley in 1880. Such an important and interesting chapter in the history of Clonakilty in West Cork has been investigated before by other local historians to their credit, but never in such detail and so forensically until now by Michael O'Mahony. So sit back, listen and enjoy. Happy New Year, everybody. So, William Bills Jones of Little Land, he became an overnight sensation in the media and in the international and national press by becoming the first landlord, landed estate owner to become boycotted during the land war in December 1880. Captain Boycott, who provided the name for this severe punishment in isolation, was the first to endure the punishment, but he was not a landowner. He was merely a land agent. So such was its impact that it is reasonable to assume that Vince Jones's legacy has been defined by that three-year period from 1879 to 1882. And that verdict of history is far from complimentary, with Bins Jones regularly referred to as a rack-renting, exterminating landlord, in addition to being branded a religious and a racial bigot. While this was a highly emotive and turbulent period in Irish history, a verdict based on such a narrow time span and focused on one event cannot be considered definitive, unless some consideration and recognition is taken into account of the rest of the man's life. A lot of things happen, and indeed are made to happen, in the space of 70 years, and that is particularly true of William Vince Jones. It is perhaps true also that many of those who have conducted an appraisal of this much maligned landlord have done so from an opposing perspective and possessed, perhaps, a natural and inherent bias. But tonight is not about taking the easy option and further bashing Vince Jones. Rather, this talk and the, t- and the research behind it will endeavour to redress the historic imbalance that exists through objective examination of William Bins Jones the man from his birth in Beckley, Suffolk in 1812 to his death in London in 1882. Special attention will be given to new research and to genealogical influences that might have shaped his thinking and informed his, his, his thoughts like race, ancestry, religion, class, culture and political outlook. He was the son of William Bint Jones, Lieutenant Colonel of the 5th Dragoons Guard and Matilda Bintz, and was the most unlikely candidate to become one of Ireland's most feared, detested and spoken of landlords in the last quarter of the 19th century. He was educated at Harrow School and graduated from Oxford with a BA in 1834 and an MA in 1836, and he was called to the bar in 1837, and this highly qualified young lawyer seemed destined for a lucrative career on the law circuit when fate intervened and when the land agent of this land enriched himself with the takings of the, of the, the rent roll. And so this shaped Bins Joseph's legacy and that of countless others forever. 
Primarily, the story of Williams Jones is a human story. Both the people and the serious consequences it had for those numerous people who were touched by it, either directly or indirectly. We will examine a number of case studies from the context of the period. And to ensure objectivity, the focus will always be on the recorded fact and the verified fact, rather than those based on opinion. Central to this talk will be an examination of the class structure and religious outlook that existed in Ireland during the 19th century and their implications for society. Fortunately, Vince Jones was a very prolific writer, and I would urge any of you to get your hand on some of his books and some of his writings, so that you might come to your own conclusions as to the merits or otherwise of his case. Was he landlord, for example, with a genuine interest in his tenants, or has he asserted himself one who tried to do his duty? Or was he guilty of religious and racial bigotry, as charged by his critics and detractors? These, among others, are among the interesting questions that we'll, we will come to during the course of this talk. But if we are to judge fairly someone's legacy, we must examine their lives and their contribution in the context of the period in which they found themselves. It is far too easy and lazy to reach conclusions with the benefit of hindsight. So if you were to give a crash course to a young 26-year-old lawyer from London who was making the strange journey to West Cork to sort out the finances of his father's estate in 1838, where would you start? Commencing with land, as it embodies all the ingredients of two very distinct and contrasting nations, and the competition between them for the control of a country, its people and its land, over many troubled centuries. The Battle of Kinsale in 1601 is regarded by many as the, great, the last great battle for the control of Gaelic Ireland, and the royalty of the Irish chieftains as the end of Gaelic rule. The subsequent flight of the Earls paved the way for plantation and the death knell of Gaelic Ireland. Land was a source of power, wealth and, 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 and survival, and tra transferring the land from the Catholic Irish to the Protestant planter reduced, reduced uh, resistance to English rule. So what happened in the second half of the 17th century can be summarised in one sentence. The land of Ireland changed hands. The stark reality is that by 1701, the amount of land that was left in the hand of the, the native Catholic was just 14%. So our young landlord would need to be appraised of this, and that what had happened and that the manner of its, exe of its execution was not forgotten, especially in places like this land. Self-preservation is a great motivator, and this prompted many of the planted and the landed owners to support restoration of the monarchy as their best guarantee of achieving total denomination over the landless Gaelic-speaking natives. But there are always threats on the horizon, like Tone's great objective for the overthrow of church, monarch and aristocracy, and his noble objective of uniting Catholic, Protestant and dissenter under the common name of Irishmen. But the subsequent failed revolution left the landlords victorious but frightened. The revolutionaries were defeated but not reconciled. The land issue and the land ownership of Ireland continue to, to simmer, and this is something that the young William Vince Jones would, would become very familiar with in the not-too-distant future. Landlords also looked to the active union as another reason to reinforce minority rule on the Catholic majority. Following the rising of 1798, many raised their own militia, 
because they were not confident that the English rule would maintain rule. But they also turned to religion and for further sanctuary and support. The Church of Ireland was, of course, the state church until 1869, which brought with it many rights and privileges. This is, the disestablishment of the church in Ireland was a, of the, as a state church was a crushing blow to many churchmen and laity. Many of the landlords were enraged when disestablishment occurred. But at that stage in 1869, we will find that William Binns Jones was at the height of his powers, and when we examine his involvement, we will find that he was not part of the general consensus, but was very much his own man. While growing up in London, William Binns Jones could hardly be aware of the socio-economic and cultural differences between Ireland and England, which contrasted sharply during the Victorian age. Britain had become a highly industrialised nation in the space of two decades, with the percentages of people living in urban areas increasing from 20 to 70 percent. But Ireland was moving at an alarming pace in the opposite direction. The census of 1841 reveals that 45% of holdings were less than five acres, and with hundreds of thousands of others of the smaller painted patches not even counted at all. Agriculture in England and Scotland were at the cutting edge of innovation and development. But the Irish system of subdivision, however, which resulted from the doubling of the population between 1800 and 1841 to 8 million, did not uh, encourage any such investment. So the census of 18 recorded that nearly half the rural population in Ireland lived in windowless mud cabins with a single room. So this was the Ireland that the young Vince Jones was coming to, and within a short few years, the Great Famine would convulse the country. The popular narrative is to convict the landlords without charge or trial. But historians like Cecil Wood and Smith in her wonderfully researched book, The Great Hunger, while not pardoning the landlord entirely, points the finger at the middleman system and blames it for much of the misery it was experienced in the country. The late editor of the Southern Star, Liam O'Regan, supported this view when he asserted that the value of the middleman was measured both by the amount of money that he could collect. Historians, politicians and others would disagree about the root cause of the famine, and we will let that to the historians. But tonight, we will examine the role of the middleman and in more detail shortly, and in particular the role played by the large farmer acting as middleman. This is of crucial importance, because if we are to be fair and balanced in judging Vince Jones, we must also examine carefully the motives and the actions of his detractors. The policy that Irish property must pay for Irish poverty hugely burdened the landowners, and in particular the landlords. By 1849, the poor law relief extended to over a million people, and 50 unions were insolvent. As a consequence of overborrowing, falling incomes, and famine, many of the ascendancy landlords were declared bankrupt. And to manage the problem, the incumbent states court was set up in 1849, and where the magistrates were empowered to sell off an estate where the annual debt was greater than, than half of the annual income. Within 30 years, 25% of the land of the landlords changed hands. But one man's difficulty is another man's opportunity. And enterprising landlords like William Vince Jones seized that chance, and he almost doubled his estate to 4,000 acres through purchases from the courts. This was the NAMA of the 1850s, 
and we will look at some of Bill Jones's purchases as part of this presentation. Undoubtedly, the famine caused dramatic changes in the structure and landholding of rural Ireland. The old style landlord who lived off the rental income, many of them were ruined, and of course, along with the paupers and the labouring class. But what of the Irish tenant farmer? But before we can answer that question, we must ask the fundamental question who was the Irish tenant farmer? The history of 19th century Ireland is far more complex, complicated and interesting than the simplistic view traditionally taught in Irish classrooms. When I was in school, we were taught it was a simple story of the British and landlord oppression on the one side and the Irish victim on the other. But history must always be put in context. And as I say, if we are to judge Vince Jones and other landlords fairly, it is, it is necessary to challenge much what is taught in the Irish classroom. It is easy for us who are descendants of those who survived to be all become victims. But when I look at my own family and my own 16 great-great-grandparents, they were all tenant farmers during the famine, and I cannot see that they were really badly impacted. In fact, two of my great-great-grandfathers who were born in the late 1700s, lived into the 90s and for over 40 years after the famine. From 1970 onwards, respected historians like Barbara Soro, James S. Donnelly Jr. and W.E. Vaughan presented compelling new evidence on the land issues of 19th century Ireland. Central among those revelations was a stark reality that the large Irish tenant farmer were themselves landlords. Professional middlemen had caused such problems for the landlords by wholesale subletting that many landlords eliminated them entirely and took them out of their leasing agreements or else included covenants against subletting. But the growing population desperately needed land. Remember, the population had doubled between 1800 and 1841. And the farmer middlemen replaced the professional middlemen and the records are there to prove that they often charged double or triple the rent of the old middleman system. Of course the landlord knew nothing about this new arrangement and often find out when they were doing clearances off their estates. But Samuel Clark put it in a nutshell when defining the class structure that existed, when he dismissed the notion that Irish society was divided into two sections, those who owned land and those who occupied it, when he said, The social cleavage existing between owners and occupiers, while very real, was no greater than the social cleavage that existed among occupiers themselves, between large holders of what I shall call the rural poor. First, one was landlord to the other. The vast majority of landlords in pre-famine Ireland were not landowners. They were tenants with large holdings who found it profitable to sublet. And there we have it in a nutshell. It was all about the class structure and one being subservient to the other. A rising population desperately needed land, and this raised the divisions between the both sides as a fierce competition for a corn acre to feed the landless and labouring classes, and it provided the, the farmers with the opportunity for exploitation, and there is evidence to suggest that many happily embraced it. A quarter of the male agricultural labourers didn't have land, and while the market forces Favoured fast pasture farming, the expanding population had to be fed. So the law of the supply and demand meant 
that the tillage prices would out of the reach of many. And James S. Donnelly, jeweler, illustrates how farmers maximised this op unique opportunity when he wrote, The charges for the cabins are generally ranging from £1 10 shillings to £2 per annum, although prices as high as £3 are not unknown. In return for his cabin, privileged and potato garden, the labourer was obliged to work for the farmer whenever he was called. Distrust and acrimony very often poison the relations between farmers and their bound labourers. This is scarcely surprising in view of the grossly exorbitant rents farmers charge for their cabins and their potato gardens. <coughs> Griffith's Federation was conducted between 1849-1864 and the records are there for all of us to see at the press of a button. This provides us with an excellent opportunity to measure the land, the level of subletting pertaining to any specific area and in particular of course to our own ancestors. As this study is examining William Vince Jones and I thought it would be worthwhile to examine the tenants of Lissalan estate and to see how they measured up with regard to subletting. But his estate was scattered all over and through various parishes, and the parish is actually the easiest way to look through the Griffiths valuation. I took the combined parishes of Kilnagross and Kilmaloda as a fair representation of tenants in this land. The research involved analysing returns from 29 town lands, where one finds that 54% of the farmers who held over five acres were themselves landlords. Some had as many of 20, as 20 such investment properties. Managing the housing was very easy, as the census of 1841 shows that almost half the houses in the combined parish of Kielagross and Kimaluda were categorised as forced class, which in effect meant that there were windowless cabins, mud cabins, and often with no windows. And over the, no the next 10 years, for the next census, the number of houses had dropped by 300 and 150 others were unoccupied. Significantly, Ben Jones was not the landlord in a single case of the unoccupied houses. And these mud cabins were easily levelled before and during the and after the famine. So people disappeared, houses disappeared without trace, and only those directly involved will ever know what had happened. So our ancestors who are so very good at passing on stories from one generation to the other, didn't do so with regard to the famine. And I think there may be some uh, hidden secrets there for many of us. It also goes to explain when the class bitterness between the large farmer and the rural poor was never more intense than it was during the famine, with the old-style middleman often less resented than, than the new prosperous farmer. The recent famine commemoration in Skibbereen focused on this war and how a shopman often decided who lived and who died. Cahal Dunaman had a basket of potatoes on his window and he also had a turnip, a turnip with a sign. They say that the people who survived was, were those who minded their turnips. Indeed, we did an example of a farmer down in Corpacherry who shot deadly youths for stealing a turnip. And a letter writer to the crop examiner in March 1847 named the farmer and said that he was walking the streets of Bandon with his head held high in full indemnity because the Irish peasant was, was, con was con uh, considered to be an outlaw. 
So this was the Ireland that the young William Vince Jones came to in West Cork at the age of 26. And how did he measure up? In 1878, up to 40 tenants, and this is 40 years after his arrival, up to 50 tenants were fated, wined and dined at a lavish party held at the House, hosted by William Vince Jones and his wife Caroline. And this was practically the full amount of his tenants at the time, because he never had more than 50. Remember, he was farming almost 2,000 acres himself. This was a party to celebrate his young son Willie coming of age, and the upcoming marriage of, his do of their daughter Carrie. In his speech, Vince Jones told his tenants how he, he told them how he was happy himself and his wife to be with him, and that he wished to help them and the goodwill he felt towards them. He believed that his life's work was more important than his own family fortune. Himself and his wife felt prosperous and happy. This was obviously a very harmonious, a very happy occasion. Despite the many rows and the personal disputes which he had with individual tenants over the years. Perhaps he was beginning to mellow coming towards age. Though Vince Jones always preferred and indeed declared for England, he possessed some Irish lineage. His grandfather, William Jones, who was the original purchaser of this land, was at one time the town clerk of Cork. The estate was disjointed from the beginning, and the 380 acres at Clohine was bought from Townsend around 1800, the same time that the lands at Halishka were purchased. And the lands here are, are all were purchased, they were not got by confiscation or plantation. That is something that will differentiate William Vince Jones from many other landlords. Old William Jones, the first owner, never visited this land. And his son, also Willem, visited once to talk to some of the tenants before he scurried away. But there is little blame for scurrying away because when the young Willem Vince Jones arrived in 1838, he said that the place was a most desolate and barren wasteland with great tracks inaccessible to wheels, and the notion of improving the estate was considered to be an impossible dream. But young Willem Vince Jones was on a, was on a, was on a mission. And he took it uh, to make an immediate impact, and he engaged in uh, an intensive training on all aspects of fire and management with a renowned agent called Blacker from Armagh. Estate management was overhauled, and all the agents and bailiffs were sacked. He introduced the binding principle that every man should fulfil whatever contract he made. And on this, over the years, he would prove unyielding and unforgiving. Interestingly, he provided loans to his tenants from that beautiful little house that still stands east of Balenciati Bridge with the, with the fancy windows. <coughs> but the first tenant who fell afoul, and described by Vince Jones as a lazy schemer as ever lived, and a Protestant, was evicted, and his land was turned into a model farm. He brought a Scotsman over to set up the model farm and to show his tenants the benefits of crop rotation, clover, cultivation and manures. According to Vince Jones, the results were spectacular. Crops grew as never before, and what a pleasure to look at. In 1843, he married Caroline Dickinson. She was the daughter of William, William Dickinson, who was a member of Parliament in London. 
and he moved full time to this man, or perhaps more precisely to a Halishka. At that time, they were living in a Halishka, and the correspondence from the early years, which are held in the Cork County and City Archives in Blackpool, show that all the postal address was always a Halishka. At the time, a Halishka comprised of 886 acres, which had made up the bulk of his estate. And under the new regime, tenants were well insulated against the famine, and as he said himself, there was no starvation or want among them. And I can see little evidence to prove him wrong. Broken tenants were encouraged to emigrate, and the more trustworthy were given jobs as labourers. But after the famine, the rents due were punctually enforced, and defaulters were immediately evicted, a policy that he used to his advantage. In his writings he boasted when he said, Good tenants realised that an eviction could mean a substantial gain to himself. He got the feel very close to his own house that he coveted all his life. Thus, public opinion on the estate, when any tenant was put out, became wholly on my side, and all hope to gain by his misfortune. He has met no sympathy. As mentioned earlier, Vince Jones used the fallout from the famine to advantage. As many landlords became insolvent, the incumbent estate court, as I said, was set up in 1849, and he was a very active purchaser in this area. In 1862, he bought over 400 acres in Corrig from Robert Bowles, who had held it in fee from 1773. In 1860, he purchased nearly 600 acres at Mountine, previously owned by Isaac and John Hawkes. Then 460 acres at Lisgiver was transferred to Vince Jones from James Foote. I believe James Foote was from Springford near Mellon. He also got some land at Kashilishki, and in 1859, he bought the interest of Thomas B. O'Callan of Schaefe for £2,100 and got 350 acres for his money. The fact that he had the financial strength to buy out other neighbouring landlords, he was, he was making profit from his own land and from his rents. So his plans were working through efficiency, productivity and price. And Vince Jones bought the profits from 1850 onwards of 40 shillings an acre, compared to 20 from rent. Many of those accounts are held in the Cork City Archives in Blackpool, and they're extremely detailed. I have just one, one there, but it'll be hard for me to see it. Uh, but it goes through things in great detail. For example, that's the, from 1877. He spent £7 and 10 shillings on seed in Kashlishki, and he spent £18, 13 shillings and tuppence for lime in the skipper. The additional income was put to good use when Louis Villeneuve, an English architect of, of French origin, was engaged to design a new house, which was built between 1851 and 1853. And of course, that house stands to this day. He generously also um, paid for completely the new church in Kilmaluda that was consecrated in 1858. During the famine, he set up the fever hospital that was later turned into the town dispensary and taken over by the, the, the Board of Guardians. And some people of my generation, before and after, we attended there and it was a secondary school run by Mrs. Deneen as St. Mary's College. But beyond the farm gate, William Vince Jones had huge, huge influence on all aspects of life. 
1853, the clamour for railways was held in many parts, including Clonakilty, where an extension was proposed from Bandon to Clonakilty. The promoters engaged the builders of high international repute, and the cost was to be £5,000 a mile. The money was to be raised on the money markets at a rate of 4% per annum, but the interest of the 4% would have to be guaranteed by the landowners of the barony. So this caused huge uh, divisions among the landowners, which Lord Carby supported, but Vince Jones vehemently opposed, because he argued that the rate of 4% guaranteeing that rate was far too severe. And following protracted exchanges, Vince Jones got his way, and while the railway extended on to, from Bandit to Inneskeen to the Manway to Dramaniga to Skibreen continued, the railway to Clonakilty did not. But this decision caused outrage on Clonakilty, and Maxwell Irwin represented the majority view when he wrote, Railways are about to renovate the resource of the country. Still, Clonakilty is consigned to the saltages of the ocean which surrounds it. If it be true that Clonakilty is doomed thus, who will take the blame for its fate? They shall be mapped out whoever they be, and transmitted to the benediction of those who shall hereafter visit the solitude. In his first major controversy, Vince Jones had proved a formidable figure. However, he had dealt Clonakilty a serious blow, and a generation would pass before the railway would be seriously considered again. In subsequent years, he clashed with luminaries of business, church and state. But his first great personal showdown was with John Cannon, who was a baker and a member of the Clonakilty Board of Guardians. The minute books for the Board of Guardians are also held at the Parkland City County Archives in Blackpool. Uh, and they, they, they clashed over, uh, especially through 1856, over dietary, religious and political matters. Mariam, I should have said, is currently researching those books in the archives, and she has found that once the Board of Guardians was founded here in 1851, Vince Jones was in there as a very cantankerous and a very difficult man. John Cannon claimed that Vince Jones and other landlords were the real promoters of, oppress of oppression, while deliberately and systematically keeping inmates in the hospital on inadequate and pernicious diets. He was particularly outraged by a motion that was passed that required the inmates to bathe in salt water up to September because they felt that this would prevent the dreaded scourge of scurvy. But of course, of course scurvy was caused by a chronic deficiency in vitamin C in their diet. The matter came to a head in June 1856 when Vince Jones charged that he would not be regarded any longer and he immediately sued for libel. Vince Jones claimed that Callan held him up to the odium and ill will of the inmates and the, and the general public as a person motivated by hostile and oppressive feelings toward the poor. But Callan came back and made another charge and he branded Vince Jones a liar, a scoundrel and a coward. This deepened the hostility and it boiled over at a public meeting that was held here in Clonakilty to consider the Towns Improvement Act. This was an act that was designed to improve the water, the lighting and the sanitary of the town.
but of course the costs that had been borne by the ratepayers, and to the large property owner being Jones and a big liability. So he opposed vehemently anything to do with increased costs on the landowner. A huge crowd had gathered in the town, and as Jones rose to speak and to oppose the motion, Callanan interrupted with a proposal of his own, which was three groans for Jones. And in a highly colourful and an inflammatory speech with beautiful language, he referred to Ben Jones, among other things, as a, a fiend in human form. And this really excited the crowd. But three days later was the actual polling day, and Callanan again assembled a large crowd. And according to newspaper reports, he assailed Jones with the greatest personal abuse and enticed the mob to surround him. They also had a coffin they had it prepared for Jones and they kicked it to pieces. It took the intervention of Father Madden, who was a parish priest, to save him from possible debt and get him back to his carriage. After the, the, the vote, the town experienced considerable writing that night. Many homes and people were attacked. In fact, some families left the town that, after that event, never to return. And this is a part of our history that has been long since forgotten and overlooked. In his affidavit, Calvin accused Ben Jones of depriving Catholic inmates in the hospital of spiritual comforts and influencing landlords to oppose Catholic candidates for the Board of Guardians. But it seemed that the saga was over when Calvin apologised and withdrew the, the offending remarks. But Ben Jones wasn't finished yet. William Bateman was a Protestant tenant in Troheen, and he had supported Calvin for the Board of Guardians in 1856, and for his disloyalty, he received an eviction order, despite the fact that they were paid with what was described as the greatest of punctuality. No matter who or what, Bins Jones always got his pound of flesh, and on this occasion, he got his eviction order. So, listeners, this is all we have time for today. In a fortnight's time, I'll bring you part two of this fantastic lecture. Thank you.